You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Amen. Go ahead and have, have a seat. Man, what a fun day. This will be great. Also, very well-attended Super Bowl Sunday. Well done, guys. Good job. Um, I hope your team wins, or whichever team it is. Go sports. Um, I made ribs, so I'm excited for the day. It'll be great. Um, my, uh, I'm not saying this to, for anything, um, but it's my birthday today. Hold, hold your applause. Hold your applause. No, no, please stop. No, 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 please, please stop. Um, but uh, it was funny, my friend who I went to school with, um, uh, she's uh, a leader at another church, and she texted me today, and just because the nature of being up front and prepping sermons and stuff is a lot of work, and um, she texted me, she said, happy birthday, I hope you're not at work today. And I said, LOL, talking about demons. <laughs> so, so it's just a great day, can't wait. <clears throat> but actually, today, is, it's, it's a powerful scripture, for sure. Um, and uh, there's a lot that is just in, like, the mysticism of the spiritual realm and how movies have portrayed stuff and everything. And so it's, it is really good to just take a deep look into the scriptures and how they portray the spiritual realm, how they portray Jesus dealing with the spiritual realm, um, and, um, and how there is um, not a fear that we of the people of God should be in and have. Um, and we'll see that today. Um, but if you're newer to the scriptures or you don't know the Bible very well, or it's just all kind of like God has just been this thing or whatever, this is a strange story. This is a wild story. Okay, this is a story you read and you're like, that's in the Bible? I had no idea. Um, but it's a really important story because if we don't have stories like this, what you walk away with is a Jesus who just like loved children and gave to the poor and did really kind things and always had a quip or a joke or something. And hey, we're comfortable with that Jesus. We like that Jesus. Everyone can get on board with that Jesus. But then you start looking at a Jesus who touches a leper. And you're like, oh, I don't know about that one. One who helps a centurion. Oh, I, don't, I wouldn't do that. Someone who's asleep during a storm. How could you do that? And now someone who casually talks to demons, um, but has a pretty powerful encounter here. So Matthew, he's, a, he's continuing his account of Jesus, showing us in Jesus, in the very person of who he is, the kingdom of heaven is here. And before we get going, do you guys mind if I pray one more time? Um, I just really think today is a powerful thing to, to be revealed to the Spirit of God, uh, the power that Jesus has. So let's pray that our eyes could see that. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your passage, your word. Thank you that we don't get to make this stuff up, that we just we are coming to your word. Your word is the authority. Your word is what we go to for truth. Um, we just pray that we as a community, we would see you more today, and we would know you more through the person of Jesus. Uh, thank you for these words. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, so you guys ready? Got your coffee? Excited? Okay. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Love it. Thanks, Johnster. So remember from last week, what Jesse walked us through, there's a connecting line that we need to not forget. We're going to kind of see it throughout the story. Remember when the disciples are on the boat? 
and Jesus is sleeping, and they're just like blown away. How can this guy do this? They say we're perishing. Jesus wakes up. Why, you have little faith. He rebukes the, the wind and the sea, and everything's calm. And then what's the question that they ask? Matthew 8, 27. They marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Okay, keep that in mind. What kind of man is this? That's sort of our question. We think we know Jesus, but we should have that same wonder of like, what is this man? If Jesus is revealing who God is, let's continue to grow in that. What is, what sort of man is this? So they get to the other side. Remember, Jesus, he wasn't on a missionary journey to say like, hey, we're going to go over here and I'm going to show you something incredible, right? In Matthew 8, 18, it literally says this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. He's trying to get away. He's trying to get some rest. He's like, hey, we need to go to the retreat center on the other side of the sea. Let's go. They were traveling to the other side. This giant storm hits that Jesse walked us through last week. They finally now made it to the other side. Finally, we made it. What a brutal journey, but like this incredible moment that was just for us. It was the storms. Jesus calmed them. He rebuked us a little bit, which stung, but we're going to let it go. We're going to let it go because he's rabbi. They get the boat on the shore. They barely walk a few feet up, and this happens. Verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Okay, literally like the exact opposite of a spiritual retreat. Like this is like, hey, we're going to go have a campfire kumbaya, and these two wild men come at you. Okay, not exactly the most restful. Some translations say that these men were so violent that no one could pass near them. Now, the country of the Gadarenes were a mixed group of Gentiles and Jews, but because of the area that we're talking about today, think probably mostly all Gentile. Okay, this was not a place with tombs and demon possession, and later we'll see a herd of pigs nearby. This was not a place for Jewish people to be at. This was a very unclean spot. Not good. You can almost feel and see the disciples as they get out of the boat, like kind of grabbing Jesus' arm, like, no, 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 Jesus, I, maybe you're confused. I don't know if you had too much sun, maybe like all your power left you when you put it into the winds, but we should not be here. We need to go. Let's go, you know. Verse 29, these two men run out to Jesus. They say, behold, they cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? There's a lot there. What was the question the disciples had for Jesus? Who is this man? What sort of man is this? The demons here answer it for him. This is the Son of God. The demons recognize who Jesus is on earth. Now, the ancient understanding of Son of God is Messiah, the one who has come to save the world and judge anything that is not within that salvation. Jesus, they know Jesus is human, but he's no mere man. This is the Son of God. But to have knowledge of God does not mean sainthood, as the demons show us here. It's not just about knowing them. What do they say? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Is an ancient way of saying, leave us alone. Right? Our destructive work is not done yet. The devil and his minions are bent on bringing on earth as it is in hell. The weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the very opposite of peace and love and joy and self-control. 
And this is fascinating. Wouldn't you think that they would run away from Jesus? They would want to hide from Jesus? They would want to keep doing their evil deeds in these image bearers. And yet the king of all things comes to shore and they run up to him and ask, what have you to do with us? Though they serve the way of the devil, there still is this recognition that Jesus is the ultimate, that he is the Lord. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Okay, so there's two realities happening here. First, just like heavenly beings come to bring glad tidings of great joy and light and life, and we see those in all the stories of that, demons are on earth to bring darkness, death, and despair. They're living their best life, doing what they do best in these two poor men. So to have a recognition that the light of God is here before them, they're exposed and no doubt about to be expelled because the darkness cannot handle the light. And see, torment to a demon is to remove it the ability to create havoc and death and destruction. So just sit in the reality that demons are begging Jesus. They aren't sneering. They aren't daring Jesus to make the first move. This isn't a contest, right? This is a moment of spiritual insight. Jesus already has full authority on earth and in the spiritual realm. But the second point is before the time. The time has long been connected to the coming day of the Lord. That might sound familiar to you guys. This day is not necessarily just a day, but much more of a period of time where Jesus fully reveals and pushes back the kingdom of darkness, fully reveals the kingdom of light. To bring his kingdom of light fully into the world, a reality that those who believe in Jesus and follow him look forward to, it's our hope. And those who don't, it is a fear. They dread. So the demons here seem to be aware of their limited time on earth, but what's cool is to notice that they're thinking they had more time to do their evil deeds. The implication is that the time is not yet, Jesus. We still have things to do. But what does the scripture say later in Matthew 24? When Jesus is talking about this day, this time that has come, he says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So if this is true then these, for sure these demons don't know. The reality for them right now is Jesus has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right in front of them. What kind of man is this? He is the son of God. Now I want to break this story up a little bit into its character. So I want to talk about the men for a second. What an experience for these men. They've been apparently possessed by evil spirits, tormented, living outside of society, outcasts, and violent. Interestingly, in Mark's and Luke's account, their parallel account to the story, there was only one man mentioned. This could be that there were actually two, but one was evidently more dangerous or kind of in charge. They just talk about the one, not really sure. But Mark's account gives a few more details of at least one man. This is Mark 5, 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That's a horrible picture. Self-harm. 
Apparently some had tried to bind him, but his demonic, this super strength that he was given took over. No one could subdue him. Chilling screams during the night and the day, a haunting picture. Luke 8, in his account, he gives us a little bit more details. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So naked, living in rocky tombs. In the the weather there, the scorching heat and then the freezing cold. Such agony. How could someone survive? In Mark and Luke's account, we get a name. This is Luke 8.30. Jesus asked them, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. In Mark it says, for we are many. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Man, there's so much language. There's so much stuff that we can go into. This is another layer that's fascinating. Do you find it interesting that legion was a Roman-specific term? Now, I'll say a comment on this a little bit later, and I'll say that I did read a few commentators that I think, in my opinion, and you can judge for yourself, took it a little too far to say that this man was a full symbol for the demonic presence of Rome and how it needed to be cast out. Maybe a little bit of a stretch. We don't get that in the story, but just keep that in mind a little bit. Legion also was just kind of a number, a a word for just like an unknown mass, just a massive group of something, okay? More specifically, a legion in a military sense was anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers, okay? That was what a legion, and they would have a centurion over them leading them. So you have to ask, was there anywhere, anything in the realm of two to 6,000 demons here? Think about that. We think about like a demon-possessed person, I, like singularly, right? But we are legion for we are many. And in their account, it's one person. That is wild, right? Even if they were split between multiple men, that is just extreme, right? So if they just experience a tempest on the boat outside the body, then this man or these men are experiencing the same insane tempest, but on the inside. What a sad state for anyone else who's with him. But now we get to everyone's favorite parts, the little piggies. Verse 30, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So Mark's account tells us in Mark 5.13, the herd numbering about 2,000. Okay, so we're in that legion-ish realm, okay? So why pigs? Doesn't this just kind of feel like kind of random and kind of sad, right? That's That's a lot of bacon, all right? So real quick, quick five minutes, if you'll just give this to me, of just let's nerd out real quick on an ancient understanding of water and pigs. Are you guys with me? Okay, water pigs. That'll never leave your mind now. Just think of water pigs, okay? So stemming from the first pages of our scriptures, the ancient Jewish understanding of the sea was the symbol for a wild, untamable power. 
something dark, chaotic, to be feared. It was this boundless nothingness. Luke used the, the word the abyss. Do not send us into the abyss. And that's exactly what was symbolized by the sea. Could not be tamed. And many pagan religions had lore about the sea and much cosmology or how the world came to be was wrapped up in the sea. If you go read ancient cosmologies, actually the Bible Project, if you guys listen to that, uh, their podcast, they have one called Cosmologies, Ancient Cosmologies, and they go through, okay, what was the, what was the Egyptian way they thought the world came to be, and the Babylonian way, and the Assyrian way, and it's amazing, and then when you pit that against the Israel way that God created, it's fascinating, and there's lots of water in that. Just a little plug for that. But the sea representing this vast, chaotic, often evil abyss, and we're right at the Sea of Galilee that we could say just went through a full demonic tempest on the disciples. And do you know what else was a very pagan ritual wrapped up in, her, it wrapped up in the area, herding and raising pigs for pagan sacrifices? Pigs were forbidden for Israelites to touch or eat. They were deemed unclean and detestable because their primary ancient purpose for the surrounding area of Israel was sacrifice to pagan gods. And the Israelites were to be holy, to be set apart, to not practice in those things. You can read about this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But this is fascinating. The pig issue became very contentious and cemented as kind of forbidden forever just literally less than 200 years than the point we're talking about right now with Jesus, Jerusalem was taken over really brutally by the king of Syria. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Does this ring a bell for anybody? History class? No, I went to a Christian, Christian high school and college, so all this is super nerd language, but Antiochus Epiphanes. This guy, he came in with his armies, he ransacked the city and temple, slaughtered many, and in order to keep the people from continuing their worship of Yahweh, he desecrated the temple and forbade any worship outside of their Greek culture. Let me read you an excerpt. This is the historian Josephus that gives us much of the history of what happened to the ancient Jewish people, and he records this of that scene or, or what happens. And when the king, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, had built an idol altar upon God's altar, he slew swine upon it and so offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. He also compelled them, the Jewish people, to forsake the worship which they paid their own God, to adore those whom he took to be God's, he made them build temples and raise idol altars in every city and village and offer swine upon them every day. Do you think they like pigs? <laughs> that's, a, that's horrific. So pigs became this picture of full desecration and abomination. This was a huge tension point for the Israelite people. But if you remember your histories, this is what sparked the Maccabean revolt. This is where the Israelites kind of in the mountains got together and they said, no, we need to win back the temple and the worship of the true God and drive Antiochus Epiphanes out of here. It's an incredible story, a remarkable fight for justice and God's honor. Okay, thank you for turning out. So now in Jesus' times, 
Herding pigs was not to be done around Jews, and pigs represented what was unclean and detestable and would bring up much of the history of their oppression. And fun fact, the area of Gadara was the Roman province of Syria. Okay, just lock that away. Like, remember, the king of Syria came and conquered, and they were in this region. So putting all this together, Jesus just went through boating, through the chaotic, swirling evils of the storm on the boat, and he didn't just quiet the storm. This language is very important back in in verse 26 of chapter 8. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Rebuked is a very specific casting out term. Okay, he told them as if they were something to stop. Just like God brought order to the chaos in the Genesis story, Jesus brought order to the Sea of Galilee, rebuking the winds and the seas as if he were casting demons out of it. This showed Jesus' great power over the forces of the natural world, and now he is showing his great power over the forces of the unnatural world, the spiritual realm. He is going to rebuke and cast these demons out of these men, but now the demons are asking, are begging to want a host body to cause their destruction, and they know of a nearby pig herd. They beg Jesus to be sent into these detestable animals, and Jesus allows it. Why does Jesus allow the demons to dictate where they go? And I am happy to say, I don't know. Why does God give Satan permission to torment Job? Why does God allow sadness and death to still happen in our world? Like, we have to wrestle with that. In my estimation, he's either untrustworthy or he's up to something that we just don't know about yet, and we have to trust in him. It's okay to sit in that tension, wrestle with a faith in a God that we won't fully understand sometimes. And in the story, it's not clear why he allowed this. I have a thought on this in a second, why he might have, but, but we can read on with interest. They enter the pigs, and whether the pigs were frightened or the demons drove them into the water because of their need to destroy, they ran off the steep embankment and all drowned, all 2,000 of them. So now knowing what we know of water and pigs and the symbolism of all this kind of stuff, you almost can see the poetic nature from the, from the belief that the waters that represent evil and chaos, and Jesus just sent demons and unclean animals back to where they came from. He's putting evil in its place, restoring God's good creation, bringing life where there was death. Jesus brought order and peace to both the rage of the storm and the demons, to the natural and the unnatural. What kind of man is this? Lord of all creation. And now praise be to God in his infinite mercy that he allows us to now eat bacon, this side of the cross. And if that's not the gospel, I don't know what is. Last character is the people's reaction to this. Even though this is a huge thing for the disciples to see Jesus' authority, not just in the physical realm, but also the spiritual, and this man's life is now changed, the people don't know what to do with Jesus. Remember, we're in a predominantly Gentile region right now. Maybe they've heard of Jesus or not, but these Jews just invaded their area, and all of a sudden, a massive 
herd of pigs are now dead in the bottom of the sea. This is a calamity for this region. You came to bring life. You just killed our entire livestock. Someone just lost a ton of profit. And not just for their own sake, like in the market, but remember, this was still Roman-controlled lands. Pork was especially celebrated at all the major Roman feasts. Right? If they could not provide now for that, what would happen to taxes? What would happen to their area? Would they get in trouble? Right? But this is also crazy. Not just Pigs were not just for eating. And this shouldn't be taken too far, I think, but I think it is worth expanding our knowledge and thinking about this. Often, as we saw, pigs were used for worship sacrifices of the pagan gods. Just, just real quick, as an example, the Roman god of Mars. Okay, do you remember what god he is? The god of war? No? <laughs> really? Did I just go to a weird school where I know this stuff? Jesse knows this stuff. Okay, the god of war, okay? He's the god of war. Do you know who specifically was meant to worship him and then represent him as if they were his hands and feet on earth? The Roman legions. Fascinating, right? The Roman legions were his, this was the Roman military, was made up of legions. The legions were like the army of the god of Mars. They were to carry out his bidding. What was the demon's name? Legions, right? I mean, you start putting things together, it gets a little crazy. Don't take it too far. Just to put the whipped cream on it, the ancient ritual that they did, that Rome did for Mars each year, is they walked around a three sacrifice animals, an ox, a bull, and you guessed it, a pig, right? There were these representations of this God here. All that to say, it's incredibly also plausible that these pigs were being herded not just for food, but for ritualistic sacrifices to a pagan Roman God in that area. So now, think of the people that worship that God, that believe in that God. They could no longer offer their worship sacrifices. What do you think the God of war does when he's angry? If you believed in that, right? They're afraid. This was not good news for their people. But just as the disciples were afraid of the storm and thought they might die, these Gentiles are now afraid of Jesus because who would want to intentionally anger the Roman god of war? What kind of man is this? Jesus. Matthew 8, 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. I find it a little hilarious that we haven't been told that the herdsmen were apparently there the whole time. Think of what they just experienced. Okay, they said the pigs were a little bit far away, right? So maybe they didn't know the interaction. They don't know what's going on. Maybe they didn't hear anything. Literally, all of a sudden, their pigs just get crazy, right? I mean, I'm thinking red eyes, fangs, like, you know, start snarling and stuff like that. And they just stampede to their deaths. And they're just standing there like, what just happened? Of course they fled. That's a perfect word, right? So they go tell everybody. The people of the area come out. Verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they praised him and brought all of their sick and their dying and their dead. And they were so pumped and excited, right? No, they begged him to leave their region. Two people begged Jesus in this story. Demons and the Gentiles who don't know what to do with Jesus. 
The demons knew who Jesus was and still begged him. These people have no idea. Luke tells us this, Luke 8, 35. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. What a beautiful, what a beautiful moment. We aren't told anything about this man. Was he married? Did he have children? Were they seeing him for the, in his right mind for the first time ever? Or did this happen later in his life? Was he embarrassed? Why weren't they ecstatic that this man's got his life back? Mark tells us that after the man was healed of his demons, he begged to now follow and go with Jesus. But Jesus, in a shocking turn of events, tells him to actually stay and become a missionary for him in his own hometown. This is Mark 5:19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how, how he has had mercy on you. That's crazy. This guy, he knows what he's done. I mean, probably. Maybe he, the whole thing was blacked out. But to now go, he was the crazy guy who now goes into the city and has to talk about Jesus. What a scene that brings out priorities. The hum, this human being or maybe a few men were just restored back to life like the leper in the beginning of this chapter, able to be back in their right mind to do life again in community. See, the Gentiles didn't have as many restrictions about dead things and living in tombs and the clean, unclean issues like the Israelites, but there was still an ostracizing that happened. He still couldn't live in society. He lived in the tombs. A casting out had happened with these men, but upon encountering this Jewish rabbi, they were somehow completely different, and the people didn't know what to do with it. This was just the beginning of God breaking through to the Gentiles, showing the radical generosity of God and his mercy to even care for these men. No doubt Jesus' Jewish disciples had had little dealings and even smaller love for the Gentiles, probably not surprised that they were full of demons. It's like, oh yeah, these are how all the Gentiles are. And yet here Jesus showed compassion and power of God through him. Now, I think there's much to say about a story like this, but I think probably the most important thing to note is the power of Jesus and the kingdom that he brings. Darkness cannot dwell in the kingdom of heaven. Darkness and things of darkness cannot stand before Jesus. See, the devil thought this realm was, that his realm was the earth. And he had full reign as God had his heavens, and yet God comes to earth and reminds him everything is under his feet. I am the Lord of the Lord, the King over all creation, over heavens and the earth. And it's common for us to read stories like this and think, yeah, it's crazy. Jesus healed people. He cast out demons. But think of the gravity of what that means. There were Jewish exorcists in Jesus' day. They were highly trained men that appeared to have varying levels of success with all their ways of doing it. And it was always a bit of a trial. And yet here comes Jesus, and he's just healing and casting out demons left and right. And here in Matthew, he not only casts out the demons, but he has a casual conversation with them of where they should go. That's insane. It's literally mind-boggling to think about the spiritual forces of evil listening and bowing down to Jesus, not in love, not in reverence or worship, 
But the difference between a devil and a saint is not knowledge of Jesus, but love and surrender. The demons acknowledge Jesus, but they don't love or surrender to him. Later in our scriptures, the author James talks about faith in God alone does not show a fully devoted heart of a disciple. He says this in James 2.19, you believe that God is one. Great job. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even they begged Jesus. So the people of this Gadara region are shocked and afraid of Jesus, and they don't know what's going to happen next, so they beg him to leave. They're not comfortable with this power or this God that they don't know what to do. And later on in Matthew, Jesus will do something similar, and religious leaders won't ask him to leave, but they'll say it's because of the prince of demons that you're casting out demons. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. And in that, I just want to share with you Jesus' response This is later in Matthew 12. He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is showing and proving that you can either believe that Jesus is full of demons or the kingdom of God is truly here and right in front of your faces. So listen, demon possession stuff, even saying at church, all the stuff we've talked about, right? It's tricky to wrap our minds around in a Western society. I didn't grow up in a church that talked regularly about it. I would say probably it was more avoided. But I just want to take a few kind of pastoral seconds on this real quick as a community. So on one hand, we can be secure that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He has given us his spirit. As Paul says so beautifully in Romans 8.37, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Incredible. On the other hand, we read from the same author, Paul in Ephesians, Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Right? We, we're, we're in between the two tensions. What does it look like to be not anxious and to be on guard? To not worry about being separated from God's love, but to still take our ever-present fight with the kingdom of darkness seriously. And I think the answer is found in Jesus. He is the perfect blend of human and holy like the power of Christ isn't something to take now as a, as a super, you know, superpower that Jesus gives us and outside and we can just go and do incredible things on our own. They still reside within the person of Jesus and the power of Jesus, but it's worked now in and through us when we surrender our life to him. This is the grace given, not a talent taken. I wrote real quickly for a very small stint in Bible college, um, I had a couple friends that um, they felt so super strongly that because Jesus did these things, and then he says greater things that you can do um, later on, that they should be able to go and cast out demons. So they decided to go on these excursions to downtown Portland, 
because apparently that's where demons are. And, um, and we would go, and they would just start, like, looking for people. And I was like, oh, I'll tag along. Very uncomfortable. Very weird. They called themselves the demon hunters. It was, like, perfect. It's very, very metal of them. And we were going, and they just started, like, talking to people, and they would, they would run into people that, in their estimation, would be like, hey, you look like you're not in your right mind. You seem, you seem like I, you need help. And they would just start praying over them. They would just start doing whatever. Everybody looked so confused. Like, everyone was like, I'm a human. Like, why are you talking to me like this? I was so, it was very uncomfortable for me. Because the heart of it, not that there wouldn't have been anything present, but the heart of it was like, we are going to now have the superpower, and we're just going to go blast it out on everybody. That's not love. And not always of God. Right? I learned in these outings that it's not something to take lightly. It wasn't just something for us to wield and to say, okay, now I'm going to go do this. It's not something for us to be afraid of. But my prayer became if an interaction with someone in love, guided by the Spirit, was beneficial for the kingdom of heaven, then God, please use us. Please use us. Use our words. Use our prayers. Go full, mightily through us. But if it is just to fill our ego or to see people as projects or experiments, then God rebuke us of that. Convict us of that. Guys, the kingdom of heaven is real and has come to earth through Jesus Christ. The last few stories of Matthew have been the realities of heaven breaking through to earth in miraculous ways. And so many years later now, the church has been established to showcase and be a lighthouse through the world that that same kingdom is alive and well in his people, welcoming all who would come to the Lord to find healing and rest. And when we read stories like this, from these from Matthew today, we should marvel at who Jesus is and what he has done so that we can see what he is doing. Now casting out in the darkness he even here in Albany. And by darkness, I'm not a like demon behind every bush kind of person, okay? There's so many things. But we do struggle with sin. The kingdom of darkness has had a whole lifetime, an entire, as long as the world has been alive, to perfect a way of enticing humans, even Jesus' followers, to its ways, not to be given over to its ways. But it's the conviction of the Spirit within us that makes us pause and realize the ways of the kingdom of heaven that is truly, that we truly want is incompatible with the kingdom of darkness, and it will drive out the dark. It's not about just not sinning or not going towards the dark things. It's about pursuing Jesus. It's about pursuing the light. He is the one that casts it out. He is the one that helps you. He is the one that will heal us of our sins. I don't believe we should fear the darkness. I don't believe we should be fearful of the prevalence and power of sin. Jesus is showing us again and again his power over darkness and his ability to bring healing and life to those who are lost. And then on the cross, Jesus officially broke the power of sin and darkness. His death, burial, and resurrection is the breaking of whatever power sin and death had on this world and now become the first fruits of the resurrected life that he gives his followers. The power over darkness is not given to us as a spiritual power, but as a gift of the spirit of grace 
who resides within us so that all glory can go to God. I'm currently on a preaching training course, and a lot of the presenters keep saying, when we preach, and I would, I would add, when we just worship in general, when we are worshiping God, we're not just preaching to people. I, I, I believe and I love that I get to preach to you guys, but I'm actually preaching against the principalities of this world. When we, when we engage in Scripture and we, we invoke the name of Jesus and we talk about it, we preach about it, we're, there's actually speaking against forces of darkness that want nothing but to destroy this church, to divide this church. The kingdom of darkness wants nothing more than to destroy your marriages, destroy your purity, fuel you with anger and doubt, riddle you with anxiety and worry and fill your head with nonsense. That sounds like truth. But Jesus is showing his disciples and us through these stories, and we know this to be true, that there is freedom from the kingdom of darkness. There is a kingdom full of light that banishes the dark and brings life. So when we respond today, that's what we're announcing to the principalities that want to destroy us because the victory we find in Jesus, that we are not a people who shrink back and are destroyed. We are the people of God, unafraid, unashamed, and unable to go back into our old ways of darkness. And we learn from this story. We're not unlike the demon-possessed man who now goes back into his hometown, freed, given new life. We've all been freed from something. Given new life to minister to others and tell the good news of Jesus and what he's done in our lives and the lives of those around us. So once again, who is this man? What sort of man is this This is Jesus, the God who is with us.